Welcome to the MacFab Engineering Podcast. We are your hosts, Parker Dolman and Stephen Craig. This is episode 274. Man, my computer just like goes crazy when I start streaming. I mean, there's a lot going on here, right? Yeah, yeah. CPU usage is pretty high. Um, anyways, continuation of the beating the heat uh, topic from last week, which was thermal management. Um, so I thought about this topic a bit over the weekend, and I kind of want to dive into, because we kind of just touched like, like you were talking about like basically back calculating, um, what was it called? Thermal junctions? Yeah, yeah, right. No, thermal impedance of of a component by like figuring out how much current you're putting through and how much it was heating up and all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. But what I, what I want to talk about is kind of like interesting designs and devices that I've come across and seen, and you've probably seen the same thing, and this our experience for thermal management. Um, so uh, I was actually testing some uh, product here at Macrofab, um, and they had some very interesting thermal management for like uh, TO220 devices that were like soldered, you know, flat, and then D-pack devices mm-hmm. that were soldered onto the board. So they were soldered onto like a one inch by one inch square, you know, copper pad kind of standard for like thermal dissipation on the PCB. Mm-hmm. But they had a screw hole that was really close to those parts that was connected to a pad as well. The, the thing is with, with those type of packages is usually like the output of the part of the component is like the voltage output. I mean, that actually doesn't make any sense. The voltage output of the component is the tab. Or is connected to the tab. A lot of times, well, not a lot of times. T- when TO220s are made, they're like basically the the tab is stamped out effectively, where the uh, the die connects to the tab. But the die also that I'm sorry, the tab also connects to pin two. So whatever pin two on a 220 is is the uh, tab. Tab, yeah. Um, and so you can't just like connect that to your chassis because then all your output rails are connected together, and that's not good. Um, so what they, what this design was, is it had copper fingers. So the, the ground plane that was connect or not ground plane, the, the thermal, thermal plane, I want to call yeah, that was yeah. connected to the, the pad or the, uh, the tab of the package was like a fingers like this. And I'll, I actually will draw this out for the podcast, uh, notes, but the live streamers can see this, but then, then they had another pad that was like this so like the thermal pad came over and then they had this big like chonky plane like this kind of like a zipper or yeah yeah but so they weren't touching and just a big zigzag between them and then that went to a a screw terminal so they could sync it to the chassis Hmm. i don't know how well that works but they did it and it's Hmm. in the industrial design that's odd. Yeah. I don't know how well it works, but it, it's got to work some a bit, you know? You know, uh, when it comes down to, like, D-packs and, and things like that, a lot of manufacturers will put the um, information in the data sheet as to, you know, what recommended size pads and, and things of that sort. Um, and, and then also, uh, if, if needed be, 
via stitching around those pads to pads on the other side of the board for additional heat sinking mm-hmm. capability. Um, most of the time that's in those uh, data sheets. What uh, TO220 packages, however, since they're through hole and um, not necessarily intended for lay down operation, I've seen it a bazillion times though, uh, you don't get that kind of information in the data sheet. Um, and I read a really cool uh, app note, I think it's by Vishay the other day about um, doing lay down TO220s on a copper plane on a PCB. What torque should you torque an M3 screw to? And does that have an impact on um, the thermal dissipation of the thing? And what's interesting is it totally does. So, like off the top of your head, like it obviously it makes sense. Like if it's really loose, it doesn't do anything. Okay. Yeah. Like we can all agree it doesn't on contact. that. But as you keep stepping up the torque, uh, it's, it's thermal dissipation gets better and better until a certain point where it actually kind of like tips over and rapidly drops off. I bet you because it's warping the board. It's not warping the board. It's warping the TO220 because the screw, the screw is not like straight where the die is. It's on the tab, which is a, adjacent to the die. And the body of the component will actually start to tip off of the thermal pad. And so, and then of course they took it to like complete destruction. They, they took it to, they, they sheared the screw the, off. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, what's interesting is it's five Newton meters was uh, acceptable for like long-term stability. And it had, like you don't get any better thermal um, uh, transfer effectively uh, past that. And then I think for an M3 screw, I, I can't remember what it was, like 20 Newton meters is the point at which the head will just shear off. So, Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. No, no, no. It's not my bad. Not Newton meters. That's That would be monstrous, right? Uh, inch pounds. Uh, so five inch pounds. Yeah, I was about to say Newton meter. What, what is five Newton meters? It's, it's it's actually not as high as you think either, though. No, but uh, it's yeah. No, I had it wrong. It was inch pounds is what I'm looking for. Uh, actually, I take the back. Oh, it's forty five inch pounds, which is what that'd be four or five foot pounds. Not too bad. But for a to two twenty with an M three screw, that's that's true. That's true. <laughs> and 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 actually, that would be uh, counterproductive for. Um, bolting to to a heat sink on the pcb yeah yeah um but yeah on that on that on this one product they had both sides were like that so like the top where the component actually soldered down and the bottom side was two planes and they were all stitched together with vias and the fingers were on both sides as well um and then last week i can't remember who um posted this component from vishay that is a thermal jumper. It's a, it's a thermal isolated jumper. And I bet you this is like a component that like is able to thermally suck away or allow thermal to, to transfer across a, a, a uh, non-conductive barrier. So you could do something like the finger thing, right? But this thing mm-hmm. actually has like what the specs since you know, thermal. I like the are. trademark name Thermowick. Thermowick, yeah. So, um, I will share that into chat and on the podcast notes. High thermal conductivity of 170 but watts. This gives per credence to that finger idea because mm-hmm. this this is basically the same thing. Except this is this probably works better, <laughs> <laughs> but it costs money. But it costs money. 
Whereas the the copper finger thing doesn't. Oh. Hmm. Interesting. I, I, I'm I'm curious if anyone um, if anyone has used these and what is your application. I'd like to see. Like, yeah. when did you need to specifically solder things down to channel heat? Oh, basically, you're. So I'm looking at the substrate material. It's aluminum nitride. So you're. Ba it's solderable, and so it's basically like a chip chip component, like mm -hmm. a resistor or capacitor. But instead of a dielectric inside or or a thick film resistive element, it's just a big chunk of aluminum nitride in there. Yeah, right. So it doesn't pass. It's electrically isolated. But thermally, it's uh, hungry. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, but for, for on my end, though, the most I've ever done is just having ground planes or thermal planes, really. Like on, on Pinatar, that's pretty much all we're using. Um, I have done kind of like as a hack. I've had MOSFETs kind of close to like connectors that had big pins and then you could like thermally sink some heat into those big pins that seems to work okay i probably wouldn't recommend that for um like a production device but seemed to work okay for the stuff because you know the connector is not designed to dissipate heat so but it works if you need it hmm. so. yeah i think there was a i gotta find the paper i read um it was a long, long time ago, back when like you were first starting at Macrofab, and it was um, like when you like they did like the the thermal planes, and they just kept making the thermal plane bigger, and like how big is enough basically, or is there a fall up like you know clamping down that the M three screw? When do you get to like um uh? What's what's it called? Um, diminishing returns. When do you get the diminishing returns on how big your thermal plane is? And uh, most of the time, it's for most component sizes, it's like one square inch. Anything over one square inch, it just doesn't dissipate out far enough or fast enough to really matter for that component. Oh, sure. Like I guess if you take a cross section and look at like a thermal gradient that come that. You know, yeah, the thermal gradient. Out, it probably out. drops off fairly quick. Yeah, it drops off fairly quickly. So anything over that, um, I, I'm pretty sure it was one square inch. I have to go find that article again. But anything over that, it helps. It doesn't help a, enough or fast enough to where like you're keeping under your thermal limits of your component. Right. Um, right. So it's basically, sort of if you need more than one square inch of copper, you need to go to another means of dissipating like having thermal vias, a pad on the backside, or <laughs> thermal <a> wick. heat sink, <laughs> or, a, or, or a thermal wick. <laughs> Therm wick. Is that what it was called? No, it has an A in it. Thermal wick, I believe. Thermal wick. TM. No. Huh. Interesting. You done anything crazy thermal-wise? <laughs> the SSPS, right? We were... Yeah, uh, but we never really built that. Well... I when when we when we fired up the SSPS and and I will remind all of our listeners it does w did work uh, it it's did in work. pieces right now, um, but like it it could generate a monstrous amount of heat like just a, an absolute insane amount of heat and we we it's a very like, good made a place generator. on our PCB for a water block to go, uh, so we never actually got around to to um, making that 
portion work, um, like actually mounting all of our uh, uh, heat generating ICs to it. So, in in my most recent uh, amp design, I have a handful of um, regulators and transistors that uh, go in relation to those regulators, and I did a ton of like heat load balancing in it. Basically, I wanted everything to kind of share all the, the heat as opposed to one getting super hot. And I've got some pretty cool uh, thermal image, um, images from it. I, in fact, I got a little video. I might even post that up where I first turn it on and you see the thing where like all the hot spots start to um, appear. But, oh, but that's where I that. use my TO220 footprint, which is basically it's like it's basically one inch by one inch ish. Uh, with a with an M3 screw through it, and then via stitching all around to an identical pad on the backside, and um, none of my none of none of the parts that I'm bolting to it get too ridiculously hot. Mm-hmm. I, I I that was something that certainly really wasn't calculated. Some of it was. So some of it I I I put a li- enough calculation to just be like, well, this isn't gonna explode you know like that level of calculation it's not kind of all the rest it was like i'm gonna turn it on and see what gets really hot and then adjust from there yeah yeah Yeah. it's not going to desolder itself right right which which is funny because i actually uh i i saw a a, um god what's it called um it's not an app note like when a company sends out um uh notes about changes to uh devices in the field errata i guess was it um, errata? Errata. They uh, so it was it was an amp schematic that I that I found on a forum the other day, and it's it's fairly n- new. And at the very last page was like, oh, we have um we have these uh, app notes basically that these these diodes that are in here are really un not necessary, and um, we suggest to pull them out. And then they say because there are some situations where they can get so hot that they desolder themselves from the board. And I'm like, oh my god. <laughs> Product, uh, product change notification. Yeah, Fabio Fernware. Yeah, I think I guess that that's probably a good. I think yeah. that's it. <laughs> I don't remember what it's called. Well, let's go jump to this topic because since we we're on the thermal stuff. So last week we we started talking about that because you had some LM three three eights that were getting a little toasty. Yeah, roasty toasty. So I may I'm I'm crossing my fingers here. We we, we might know tomorrow. Because, um, well, okay, let me let me back up. Last last podcast, we talked about some of the thermal design uh, that I've got going on in, in one of my new projects and using some LM338s to crank out, uh, <clears throat> what is it, 6.3 volts at 2.6 amps. Um, and they're fed off of a supply that's like 10 to 11 volts, somewhere in that range. So that, you know, they, they produce a fairly significant amount of heat and I'm heat sinking them to my chassis and I'm, I'm working through the heat issues. <laughs> Very similar to my amp design where it's just like, I'm turning it on, seeing what's happening and then fixing the problem. <laughs> uh, but so I've got these LM338s that are that are in my design and I purchased these off of Amazon and one of the reasons I purchased them off of Amazon is because uh Mazer and DigiKey are not particularly quick at the moment and this was available a lot faster uh so I just bought a, like a little five pack of LM338s off of just wh- whoever had them on Amazon and um so last week I was di- I was discussing that these transistors were just or sorry the regulators were getting way too hot 
Um, so I had a, a heatsink solution where I was just going to slap a heatsink on the back and, uh, and see what happens. Well, I did that, and it didn't solve my problem. In fact, it basically didn't do anything at all. And I even tried getting a load of ice and just sticking it basically on the back and just like force cooling them and even putting ice on the body of the, of the regulator to just see like, okay, is, is this me not heat sinking things properly? Uh, and can I temporarily just like force cool them really hard? No, they're not functioning. And they seem to be dying around one and a half to 1.6 amps of current which if you look at the LM317, it looks like that um, regulator, its maximum output is about 1.5 1, uh, 1. amps-ish, somewhere in that range. So I'm, I'm just questioning, perhaps, did I get uh, some LM338s or some LM317s that are actually marked as LM338s? Um, so I... I, I it's funny because I wanted to get things quicker. So I ordered off of Amazon and then I got potentially bit by this. So I went to DigiKey and ordered some and they show up tomorrow. So uh, I, I'm going to throw them in and see if they respond any different. And if so, the plan is to ship these off to Parker so he can x-ray them. I bought some extra LM338s. So he can do a uh, a comparison. A comparison. I don't. Die. I don't remember which brand they are or which brand they're marked as, because who knows, right? Um, yeah. So we'll, we'll we'll see on that. And if we don't see any differences under the uh, uh, X-ray, I'm going to try to see how much it will cost to send it off to get them decaps, and just see because then we'll actually see what the difference is. Yeah. Yeah. I and and I don't. I don't like. LM three one seven's been around for a long time, so like I think we could probably find an image of the die right somewhere, and then compare if that's what we have there. Mm-hmm. So maybe this is a story not to buy off of Amazon, <laughs> just rando parts. <laughs> this is this is a good story to tell your customers not to buy off Amazon. Well, for the production, I mean, yes, for production that 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 would never happen. This is me in my basement, uh, right behind me. Yes, here. yes. So. Yeah, I might I might have gotten bit. Hyron found a China PCB copy.com. <laughs> but apparently they have an IC unlock service. Unlock. And I guess you send your parts and they decap them. They decap them and copy them for you. <laughs> get a quote. Oh, they actually will uh they actually can get the bin or hex file off a microcontroller too. What they read all the bits? Yes. Oh God. I, I I love this 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 like footnote here. IC sample will be decapped. It will not be in work condition after IC unlock. One hundred percent refund if the samples do not pass the test. Interesting. I'm gonna have to look into that. Yeah. But this scary. this is why services like this when we were talking about right to repair. And your secret sauce being your schematic. This is why that's not a thing. <laughs> yeah, even your firmware can be extracted, right? Yeah. Your secret sauce has got to be like your service and your your brand, which actually leads to what we were talking about right to repair and what Apple wanted to protect is their brand and their service. Their prestige. <laughs> their pedigree. 
Um, Speaking of that, actually, the right to repair stuff is uh, um, there was a article that I w- that was sent to me about the whole uh, ice cream. You know, when you go to like McDonald's and you want to get an ice cream, but they always say the ice cream machine's broken. Oh, is it a conspiracy? Yeah, that's actually a conspiracy and an infamous like meme now. Um, but apparently those machines are really finicky. And the service plan, because like most McDonald's are like franchises. And so you you kind of have to go through McDonald's to get like your service for all your equipment. And especially that machine. And, and it's like some special crazy machine, intricate machine that is uh, the only way to get service is through the company who also makes it. And they don't have a lot of service technicians. So it takes a long time to get your stuff fixed. And um, And there's a couple people out there that are trying to like hack the machines and uh, make them easier to repair and easier to figure out what's wrong with them. And McDonald's and I think company's called Thompson or Thomas, something like that, are going after these people for like making it so it's easier to fix their machines. Right to soft serve. Yes, the right to soft serve. (laughs) (laughs) Taylor. Thank you, Craft Lab. It's it's Taylor. That's fantastic. Um, Yeah. Which is, that's the thing that, like, if you bought, if you actually own the machine, so you're not, like, leasing it from Taylor. Because I don't know about that difference. If you actually bought the machine from Taylor, you should be able to fix it however you want. If you're leasing it from Taylor, okay, you got some, you got to wait for them. You you know, back in college, I worked as a... um, Computer monitor repair technician. And uh, the... Uh, Computer monitors, so like CRTs? CRTs and LCDs. Um, we, we had a flat team and we had a tube team. And uh, the... we Okay, so we had a, we had a company that basically... Uh, so, <clears throat> like, car mechanics and... and uh, uh, gosh, what am I... Dealerships. Car mechanics and dealerships could sign a contract with us where we would outfit their entire thing, their entire place. We would give them all their computers. We would give them all their monitors. We would do everything. But if anything ever broke, they had to return it to us because they technically didn't own it and we would repair it. So they didn't have so they the were releasing the, everything from you. Effectively, yeah. Um, but not. On, but it didn't work out that it – like they leased the, the building worth basically – so uh, they didn't have the ability to repair things. I wonder if right, word, uh, right to repair would change that. Like if something broke, if they didn't have to send it in, if they just so on site. No, because part of it is like the terms have to be explicit. So your terms would be explicit that, hey, you don't actually. That's the whole thing with leasing versus owning. Owning, you have to pay for all the capital up front. Leasing, you the. Like your comp, your leasing company is taking depreciation on the product, not the company who's leasing it from you. So that's the difference, right? But how does that apply with cell phones that you haven't fully purchased yet? If you haven't fully purchased it, then technically that company owns that phone still. Then you can't repair it, right? Or you have to go through whatever the AT and T. If it's say it's AT and T, so I'm I'm, I'm making the argument service. that it's the same. Sure, if you're talking about phones that you don't own right. or you're leasing. Right. But that's actually the thing is a lot of people don't know that. Or they get their phones for free and they don't know it's it's a lease plan through their 
their bill or whatever. So those would be more explicit. Um, so. So chat is going crazy about about Taylor McDonald's and ice cream <laughs> and why the McDonald's ones break all the time. Apparently, there's like a McDonald's ones are custom that require a lot of finicky, finicky adjustments to keep them running right. Huh. Which which is interesting because it doesn't it. I mean, it doesn't seem to be an issue at other fast food restaurants, right? No, it's kind of ubiquitous with McDonald's. I just got a chime notice. And I don't know from where. Look at like all eight bazillion monitors I have open right now. <laughs> Could have been Slack. All right. Well, uh, I see. I see a note up here about common DRC problems. I say let's oh, move yes, on. Oh yes, yes. Go talk Sorry, about I got that. a little bit distracted. No, you're good. Um, yeah. So common DRC problems. So I've been actually going through and kind of making like a. DRC matrix file, not matrix file, matrix grid at, at MacFab for our all our teams. Because the engineer engineers are like, we're generating DRC reports and all this stuff. And we go to like our customer success team or our sales department and go, hey, your customer has these things that are wrong with your with their design files. And then um, they take it and just hand it over to the customer. Well, this is kind of like training material so that now like sales and customer success actually know like what does it mean when annular ring has a a uh drill to copper issue like what does that mean what's and what resolutions should they expect and all that other stuff basically it's training material but i was going through all the all our old reports basically building up the database for it and um i found two issues that almost are always the ones that pop up. Mm. And so I want to discuss them and also be on, because I know y'all do a lot of contract manufacturing is what issues y'all see a lot too. And I wonder if they're the same. So the first one is, is the annual ring being too small around drills. Um, most of the time, it seems that um, most annual rings are the same. They set them to, or a designer will set them to the same as like a trace width. So if you have a five mil, five mil trace width DRC, they set it to five mil as well. Usually uh, that's incorrect though. Usually your annular, especially for really cheap PCBs, the annular ring would be like six mil in that case. Because that what because what's different about it is your your drill hits happen after the copper gets etched away. And that machine has a different tolerance than your copper etching machine like the wash um so that that's the biggest uh that's like the number one problem is like annular rings being too small and then two copper to board edge issues most people for some reason or designers like will put the copper right to the board edge every single even like internal layers right to the board edge and that causes issues of like when you start delam well, when you start depanalyzing boards you start getting delamination um, you can get water moisture wicking into those inner layers. Um, if, if you have a trace that's right next to it, you also get like, if you depanalyze, you can, that trace can get cut. It, it's like board houses for some reason are a magnet to putting mouse bites right next to like the trace. That's the closest to the edge of the board. 
I don't know what it is. That always seems to be the case, though. I don't know why, they, how they just go, oh, Trace next board must put Tad there. <laughs> 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 Which causes delamination issues and, and stuff like that. Um, and also like components being too close to the edge of the board for the same reason. Basically, like when you start deep analyzing, especially if you like V score and you're running your, your big old pizza cutter down the board to deep analyze the board and someone puts a little ceramic capacitor too close, that thing's going to pop right off. So what, what DRC problems do y'all see the most? I would say the, the top two is um, components on the edge. Like not close to, but like like on, like oh, right on the edge. <laughs> yeah, like the edge of a four oh two is the edge of the board kind of thing. Um, I've seen that before, and then um, silk screen on pad. Um, and and actually, what's what's interesting is I get I get that probably more often than maybe you do because in in our industry, uh, a lot of our customers tend to be very. Uh, they want artwork on the board. And so they create this really killer artwork and it looks awesome, but they've done it in, you know, Corel draw and then they just import it and slap it on the board and they, and they don't do a silkscreen removal. Uh, so that, that happens more often than I wish. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah Cause I, I actually don't see a lot of silkscreen issues, but we do a lot more industrial stuff instead of artwork stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, Everyone's trying to make them. The designator is really clear, and so I guess that doesn't. You know, we don't get a lot of art. <laughs> you know, one thing that that I thought I would see more in general, but I just don't see very often, is somebody just like trying to get like a two thou trace or something like like a one thou trace, being like, yeah, it's good enough. You know? Yeah, I don't. Like, I don't see that. Like two, like traces being too small. Yeah. I don't see that that often. Yeah. Um. But yeah, the uh, copper to board edge, yeah. That, also, that's another thing is having your part, especially those ceramic capacitors you're talking about being too close to the board edge. Um, ceramic capacitors like to crack with, during depanelization. Um, so that's like the worst place you can ever put a, a ceramic capacitor. And that would actually be a really fun experiment is how far away does a ceramic capacitor need to be from a board edge to be like safe? Uh, you know, actually, let, let me let me um, let me give you an example on something that actually is uh, a little bit opposite of that. Uh, like too far away is also a problem because uh, a, a lot of the boards that we do are skinny and long. And uh, and, if oh, you, and, and, you and if you have a ceramic cap right in the middle of it, you end up creating this convex thing and it pulls the cap apart and i actually got an rma the other day because we depanalyzed incorrectly and you could just press on the cap and the circuit would work uh because we and so actually in that situation you know there's multiple solutions first of all the person depanalyzing it uh they just need to lift some, some extra training to you know just grab yeah, both of the rails on the end and snap them right there's a way to do it but also if the uh, if that capacitor wasn't in line with the long direction if it was 90 degrees that yeah, could have been um uh that could have prevented that or helped prevent it yeah yeah i wonder what the that distance would be so it's you definitely you don't want it to be in the middle because then it gets both sides of the arc so to speak yeah of the board flex right but you don't want it too close because that's where most of the pinch, pinch, I would say pinch load <laughs> would be. There's probably some sheer thing or something like that. I'm not a mechanical engineer, man. <laughs> yeah. 
I don't know what that is, but definitely not right on the edge. I think you just um, named this episode, by the way. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, so, and also the other thing is, do y'all when y'all run DRC, do y'all run a tolerance on your checks? That's actually one thing I started looking into is because you'll run like let's say your traces, uh, for example, MacFab, like the smallest is like three mil, three mil, three mil trace width and spacing and annular ring. Well, when you get that small, conversion issues happen, like conversion tolerances when you convert from like millimeter to mils or mil- mils to millimeter happens, and you start getting like 2.98 mills instead mm. of three mills right right which throws an error but it's like that's not really an error that's fine right it's fine so i be- we started running uh, a couple months ago at macrofab a 0.1 mil uh tolerance on our our drc stuff so you can get away with a 2.9 mil technically um, you know we're i think we're a little bit lucky we we do we do a lot less contract manufacturing where it's just like somebody dumping files and being like, build this. Uh, it's a lot more relationship building. So most mm-hmm. of our customers actually end up using dip trace and, and we can work with them with their actual design files. So we don't get to, or get to, we don't have to deal with a lot of tolerance issues. A so lot you get of to things, work with the like, native files. You're a generic contract manufacturer. You like, yeah. if someone's got money and they say, build this, you'll do it. Right. Um, I mean, as long as they play by uh, your rules and things. And and we get to kind of, like, work with our customers a little bit more such that, like, <laughs> we force them to play by much more narrow rules than you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And you get to play with the native files almost all the time. So you don't have translation. Uh, translation is not the right term, but... Um... Conversion. Conversion issues. We, we I think, I mean, units. maybe we have one client that where we just get gerbers and a bomb everyone else we get their native uh design files uh and and that's uh i mean even if it's like eagle or keycat or whatever um and that's that's amazing <laughs> it helps a lot oh yeah it does cool so i've been deconstructing oh before we move on anything else for common drc problems i kind of want to talk more about this like let's say think more about it I think um, we so should we should do week. a whole DRC episode where like we go a little bit deeper into all of it, you know. Yeah, we need to get a guest for that too. Run DRC. So, okay, let's move on. So I've been deconstructing a a record a, a like portable record player. It's okay, right, right there. Oh, on nice. The stream. And uh, so because it's got one of those old school style record players in it, where it's which is like the um super heavy arm with no counterweight it's got like a self-loader spindle and all that crazy stuff um which you don't want to play a record on because they tend to the, the the needles basically tend to eat records um they're not very gentle on them um are you so you're converting like, it well not really cuz some people have converted it but you still have the issue of like weight balance issues because it's not a counterweighted it's like a spring-loaded arm and stuff um so i'm just gonna and the the thing is i'm never gonna play a record on in it ever right i'm not gonna 
I don't need a portable record player ever. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I would like to have at my office, I'd like to have a record player at my office so I can on Fridays listen to records. Um, And so I was thinking like, okay, I can get like an amplifier and stuff like that because I already have a record player that I can bring up. But the problem is the I didn't want to really buy anything. I don't want to buy an amplifier or anything like that. So I started rummaging around what I had. And I'm like, oh, I have this old amplifier or own one, basically. And so I started taking it apart. And it's a tube amp in there. Mm-hmm. And so I took a picture. It actually has a schematic that was glued to the bottom oh, yeah. of the box. Right to repair. <laughs> yes, right to repair. And so it is a... I actually don't know what it is, but I put the picture in the uh, show notes so it would be easier for you to read instead of on the stream. Mm. Um, and it looks like a basically has a preamp and then an amplifier that drives the speakers. Mm-hmm. And then a... Uh, and I don't know what that other tube does. The uh, 35W4. That's a rectifier. So that's what's actually rectifying for the amplifier. That's the power supply. Yeah. So you got 120 that comes in. That's uh, that's the rectifier, and then C7 is a 40 microfarad. That's your main filter capacitor there for. So that's going to be your highest voltage right at that point. So. So, and this is kind of like a self-contained box. Let me go grab it. Oh, yeah, that's pretty neat. Um, so so how long have you had that for? I've had this for a couple of years now, just okay. sitting in like my attic and it does work. I did plug it in and um, I just tapped the needle on the the record player and it made poppy noises. So I'm like, okay, that it works. Yeah. Um, so what I'm thinking about doing is because I actually kind of like, I like how the front looks. That's cool. Yeah. It's pretty cool looking. So I'm thinking about what I'm going to do is, and these are also not worth anything. Like you can go on eBay, they made hundreds and thousands of these back in the day, mm-hmm. and everyone kept them, and they're not worth any money. So what I was going to do is, I'm going to like chop the box down, and so it's just the front part. I'm, I'm getting far away from a mic. Sorry, Josh, our audio editor. But I'm basically going to chop the front off and make a new back enclosure for it, and so and then probably replace the speakers with something that's nicer um and then uh and then basically use my own record player and plug into it nice yeah basically make it a standalone amplifier tube amp it already runs directly off a pickup it's already got a preamp in it yeah yeah i mean you probably have to um adjust a handful of things on it but uh that's actually pretty cool i like that well i don't think i have to adjust anything though because it's the pickup goes right into the amplifier uh, so you're just gonna replace it with whatever your record player is? Is what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, it, it, uh, my record player outputs the same voltage levels as this record player does. Uh, well, but is it uh, pickup d- does? Isn't there two types? There's moving magnet and moving coil types. I don't know which one this is. It's the same as what I have. Okay, okay. Uh, so yeah, I, I mean, it's... given I don't know how old it is, it's probably worth um replacing the filter caps in it. Yeah, I was I was probably going to replace recap it, and that's it. Yeah. Oh, also, uh, it looks like it has a death cap in it, which is uh, so it's you got you got no ground effectively. It goes through a capacitor uh, in there, which is C ten, 
They 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 call that the death cap where you just basically ground out the neutral. <laughs> so uh, I would get rid of that. That's usually one of the first things to do. Just replace the power cord with a three prong and properly ground one end and just get rid of that capacitor. Altogether. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, because it's got a it's got a little two pronger. It's got a little two prong yep. plug. Uh, I actually, so. I had a guy who I, I just did a repair on an amp for him where he was like, yeah, every time I'd get up to a microphone and start singing, it would shock my lips. I'm like, dude, just, just stop, stop playing that. <laughs> let me, let me fix this real quick. Those death caps are, um, yeah, they're a bygone error kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. So I, I will, when I, when I build the enclosure for it and when, uh, I'll, We'll revisit it on the podcast and talk about what caps to get and what actually like we'll draw on the schematic and and figure out what we need to redo and stuff like that. Yeah, it's kind of neat because there's actually I really okay, so I love this. There's there is a potentiometer that has a uh, that's in series with a cap and it's it's tapped off of the cathode of one of the, the or the preamp stage. A lot of times in in amplifiers, you, you you'll basically boost your your gain or you boost your signal coming in, and then you'll use a potentiometer in a in a voltage dividing situation to adjust your volume. But they're doing it completely different in this situation. They're actually adjusting physically the gain of the stage uh, with a with a potentiometer in the cathode, which is you don't see that super often. On top of that, it has feedback from the speaker. So the speaker actually sends signal back to the uh, preamp to linearize the whole stage. So like this this is a kind of a unique little little thing here. I mean everything's just probably trying to make sure that it has a flat bandwidth as much as possible. But you don't mm-hmm. see that very often where you adjust the gain of the stage with the cathode. Um, so I'm I'm curious to see uh, I, I'm I'm just curious to see how it works out. Yeah, I I mean my this was my great uncle's before he passed away. Cool. Um, and so I'm kind of interested in just like revitalizing it in something that I could actually use because I'm never going to use it as a portable record player. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not worth anything to sell, and the front panel on it is actually in really nice shape. The rest of it's kind of junky, like it's a little beat up. But I'm like, hey, cut it. Put a new back and bo- uh, you know, put a new back and box on it, and try to match. I think try to match that brown vinyl, and then you know, vinyl the new wood I cut for it. And uh, oh, I'm going to leave because like awesome. the, the knobs are on the side of the on the unit, which uh, they're kind of dirty. Mm. Yep. So, but yeah, the front looks awesome. Yeah, that's I, I really like that. We need to take a picture of it. Yeah. And it's got two speakers in it. And so I, I bet you I'd just take the speakers out and then find something that's modern equivalent to replace them with. Um probably what same homages and probably the same probably get really sensitive. Uh because I think it's only a what's the wattage on this thing? It says on the <laughs> yeah, box. It's not gonna be much. It's a it's it's a single uh, pentode in class A operation. So I, you know, uh, five watts tops. Like, I think it said like 30 on the box. Uh, I kind of don't think that, but who knows? May, I don't, I don't know what this tube is. The, what is it? Five Oh, uh, I can't read it. 50 C five, 50 C five. 
Let me look that up real quick. Yeah, Including you're not going to get 30 MP3s. watts out of that thing. <laughs> yeah. That, uh, no, that's actually a good idea. And actually, that's what I've done too. I actually, funny enough, I have another project here, and we've actually talked about this one on the podcast before. And uh, and since the I, I'm I've been going back to work and working at HQ again, Macfab HQ, I'm going to finally install my intercom no. system. Wait, is that the the one that we pulled out of the ceiling? Yeah. No, that's and awesome. on the back, <laughs> right? It's got a Bluetooth module. The old school Bluetooth module. When we, uh, gosh, we were playing with uh, Doom music through uh, Speaker McBox Face back in the day. <laughs> yeah, so we took we took this is the old. So back when we first moved to to that location, uh, what we call Macrave HQ now, um, Steve and I didn't have anywhere to play music in the warehouse, and so I pulled this out of the attic that was at, at there and this is an old paging system and then i i had a bluetooth module i soldered it onto it and then steven pulled an intercom speaker out of the attic <laughs> and then put it on top of and took a cardboard box and made that the the chamber for it and it actually sounded pretty we jammed that good. thing for a long time i mean a couple years yeah it was it was <laughs> so, super legit i i I wonder, do you have a picture of that? Oh, gosh. It'd be I, awesome to find a picture of it. Maybe. I, I wouldn't be surprised if the uh, development team at Macrofab set it on fire eventually. They they were not a fan of it. <laughs> no. Well, I had the intercom system, and I put the speaker back up in the attic when we uh, took that whole area apart. So um, it, the box, of course, is gone. Yeah. But... Yeah, but like you, we cut a hole for the speaker to sit in, and then you cut, and it sounded muffled. And then you, I you, you like, it. and then you ported it by cutting out a hole in the cardboard, <laughs> and then it actually did sound pretty good. So, uh, so I, I pulled up the data sheet for a fifty C five, and it's a it's a low voltage um, pentode, so it's like fifty volts. Oh wait, sorry, that's their heater voltage. It's about a hundred and ten volt is their application here. But at 110 volts in class A operation, maximum signal power output is 1.9 watts. So it's yeah, it's not gonna it's not gonna shake the walls. Let's put it that way. No. But again, I don't I don't want this to. No, and I like it. It's a it's a fun little box at that point. Yeah, I want to put a, I want to set it up on my desk with my record player right next to it and then just jam out to some tunes on Friday afternoons. Yeah. And not bother anyone at the fad. Uh, well, with 1.9 watts, you're not going to bother anyone. Yeah. And actually, I might even just see how these speakers sound and just be like, yeah, that's acceptable. <laughs> Old crusty tone. Yeah. It's called lo-fi, Stephen. <laughs> Crust tone. That's what it is. Crust tone. <laughs> Crust tone technology. Yeah, TM. but it's lo-fi, and then you go listen to lo-fi beats on it, right? <laughs> Double lo-fi. Double low How low can you go? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. So I got a I got a cool last little thing. Um, well, uh, maybe not. Maybe not cool. It's a it's a suggestion. To it's people. always cool. This is the coolest podcast. The, the best one. Yeah, we're rated number two by somebody on Reddit. Uh, yeah, the <laughs> that, that was my favorite thing. <laughs> that, that's uh, I think that we should make that our tagline. Voted number two best Macfab or best 
electronics podcast by some dude on Reddit. (laughs) (laughs) And that's a truthful statement. That is true. Yeah. Uh, So in a design I've been working on, it's funny, I'm on... I can't remember, like the third or fourth revision of this design. And and every every revision has worked fine for one portion of the circuit. So I, I haven't even like considered adjusting that circuit. And then I get my new revision and it's not functioning well. Now, I did change the op amps that are in that circuit, but I changed nothing else about uh, the circuit. I mean, I guess the layout changed a little bit, but uh, and and it's and it's operating a little bit strange. Well, I found out that these newer op amps that I put in there, they're absolutely phenomenal, but they just need a little bit more help. Uh, and they need... Um, the older op amps I had were fine without any feedback capacitors in them to help stabilize them. But this, these new ones need a little bit more love in that uh, situation. So, so I'm going to bet you is the new ones... I'm just going to guess. The new ones can respond faster to tra- transient changes. Well, that's the thing the that's, that's interesting is they have largely the same characteristics. It's not like they're like 800 times better or anything like that. Uh, so the, the here's, here's the part that's really interesting. So this circuit is part of a window comparator, but not just like up, uh, upper and lower bounds. I have 10 boundaries on this thing. So it's like a window comparator stack. And basically okay. what I'm doing is I'm putting a, a signal into it, and as it crosses boundaries, it does different things for every single one of those boundaries. Uh, so what I can do is basically take like a saw wave, and I can hack and chop it at different points for all of those window comparators. Well, these op amps drive the, uh, the threshold levels of all of my window comparators in this circuit. And uh, the, the, the thing that's interesting about it is they output uh static dc voltages it's not these op amps are not the ones that are making it are changing in voltage the user can do things with the interface or change knobs and they will shift but as soon as you stop they they're they're fixed dc now what's interesting is when when the incoming wave crosses the threshold on these comparators the comparators switch and that's what's causing instability on the op amps it's I, I still haven't figured out exactly what's happening because the output of a comparator, which my comparators are not feeding back to these inputs, are causing these op amps to have problems. It might be a little bit layout related. It might be uh, uh, power supply decoupling related. Uh, regardless, a simple fix to this I've found is I'm just piggyback resistors across my feedback resistor in my op amp. And uh, that capacitors on your feedback resistors. On the feedback resistors. And that that ends up creating effectively a low pass um, circuit. Yeah, a little low pass. Uh, just a little bit. And and it, and I don't have to do anything crazy. I'm not putting it like really low. I'm putting just a handful of picofarads across it. And that gives enough stability for the op amps to not ring on the output. Because what I was having is is as my comparators would change, the 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 leading edge of the comparator change would be fuzzy and nasty. Uh, it almost looked like bad hysteresis which wasn't actually the problem in the in the comparator all this boils down to that i wanted to get here and this is a little bit of a reminder to myself is if you have the room on your board leave space to populate those components and it's really funny because i do that everywhere i usually take a shotgun to my board and just pepper it with places to add capacitors for exactly this reason but i didn't do it 
in this one situation, and this is the situation where I need it. Where you needed it, yeah. <laughs> so that's just like a trip, uh, not trip, a uh, a tip to uh, to all you out there if you're messing with analog circuits. Just leave yourself some pads for uh, uh, adding capacitance if needed. I wonder if you compared the data sheets, I wonder if the one that worked previously had slightly higher like parasitic capacitance on its inputs. It's there's it's, it was just enough to keep the ringing down. Something it's okay, so something when the comparator flips states flips. something about its inputs are are changing in such a way that my op amp that's driving the inputs is not responding well to that. And mm-hmm. then after some period of time, they recover. So they, they, they ring for a little bit and then recover into whatever state they're happy with. Well, that's what I was saying is on your feedback loop, you just put a little, just a tiny bit of capacitance <laughs> delay. There, and, right? that, and that was enough to skew that change yep. a bit yep. Yep. where your new op amps we're fine are fine now but on your old ones something about the old ones were okay with it and it could have been a little extra parasitics there or they were sl- they actually are they respond slower so they don't see that transient change as much something like that i i i believe it's i believe you're on the right path or track with it there and the thing is these newer op amps are new whiz bang op amps and they probably are are uh just overall better than the old mm-hmm. op amps I was using. The old op amps might already have enough parasitic inside that they basically have something akin to that capacitor. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah, the nice thing about Surface Mountain is you can always piggyback in prototype land, you know? So piggybacking yes. capacitors, not a problem. Manhattan style construction. That's right. Yeah. Well, I think we should wrap up this podcast. Yeah, I think that I think that's good. So that was the MacFab Engineering Podcast. We were your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Thank you, yes, you, our listeners, for downloading our podcast. And to the people who are listening to our live stream, hello out there in internet land. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Steven and I know. Tweet us at MacFab at Longhorn Engineer or at Analog ENG or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. You can get to it by going to MacFab.com slash Slack.